And I want to read our verse from today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verse 2. It says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. As part of our series, Gathered, Worshiping as God's People in Spirit and Truth, I have the privilege of teaching on the topic of giving. And I'd like to preface this by stating that I don't intend to give off the impression that I'm someone who has already reached this point. Just like you, I also need reminders about what the Bible teaches on this matter. And I need to allow the Holy Spirit to convict me in areas where I still need to grow and mature. With that being said, uh, most of this material is drawn from a lesson on giving from a core seminar at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And that lesson has greatly edified me on the subject of giving, and I would recommend it as a resource for you to explore and to revisit. And another excellent resource I would point you to is a three-part sermon series titled Concerning the Collection by Pastor John MacArthur. And I was able to read the sermon transcripts after finishing my sermon, and I found them to be uh, extremely helpful in understanding this Bible verse. My sermon today has four main points. One, reasons for giving. Two, what are we to give? Three, how should Christians give? And four, where should Christians give? So let's dive into the first point, reasons for giving. Now this point is actually uh, broken up into four parts. So let me go with the first, uh, first part. Because God is generous to us. The primary motive for giving from a Christian perspective is that we give because God freely gives to us. God's generosity is everywhere. It began in creation when he spoke into existence, our world, and created everything that allows us to live in it. Even the ability to enjoy creation through a, a beautiful mountain range or walking on the beach, it's all part of God's generosity to us. Not only to believers, but unbelievers as well. But nowhere will you see greater sacrifice and giving than in the cross where Jesus died. The Bible summarizes Christ's extreme generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though, uh, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Not rich in a material sense, but in a spiritual sense. See, Jesus has paid all our debts with his precious blood and has clothed us with his righteousness. And when we give, we ought to remember Christ's abundant sacrifice for us. A most holy, worthy God was crucified, died, and buried for your sake. That was the payment of your sin. Thus the gospel is the, foundation, is the foundational reason as to why we give. We give because we are recipients of immeasurable grace. We give because Jesus is a God who gives, and he commands us to be like him. 
Secondly, our giving is a demonstration of how great and worthy God is. In Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So you see, previous to meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was named Saul. He was a proud Pharisee, and he flaunted his pedigree. But he gave everything up. Not only that, he called everything outside of Christ as rubbish. He gave up all worldly treasures and comforts and clung to Christ because he knew that there is nothing more valuable than Jesus. Friends, how encouraging is it that God can use even our giving to glorify himself? When we give what is valuable for the sake of Christ, we are proclaiming that Christ is of utmost value. Now, the third reason we give is that it promotes godliness. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when we focus on earthly success and wealth, we often expend our energies on earthly matters to the neglect of heavenly things. Many people claim to look forward to heaven, but their hearts are caught up in the cares of this world because that's where their treasure lies. How tempting it is to be like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. In Acts 5, they sold a piece of property and secretly kept a portion of the profits to themselves and brought the rest to the church as if they were giving it all away. There are many that are willing to part with some, but few who are ready to part with it all for the sake of Christ. Matthew 6, 24b says, You cannot serve God and money. And in verse 19 it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Giving also cultivates godliness by reminding us that God has absolute rights and ownership over all things. He doesn't just own portions of what we have. And this highlights the biblical doctrine of stewardship in which God owns everything and man is just a manager or steward of those things. So my question to you today is, are you stewarding well what God has given you? A fourth reason why we should give is because giving helps to bring about blessing. Now, in Second Corinthians, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. God encourages us 
to give, for there is reward in giving. It is a good and godly desire to seek after God's blessing and reward. It acknowledges that he is the giver of all things and that he is the owner of all things and acknowledges his character as one who is merciful and generous. However, there are many false teachers who twist God's promises and declare that God will give us material blessings if we give to, him, to, the, to them. These false teachers claim that God will fix people's problems and bless them financially if they are faithful in their giving. These false teachers are essentially defining blessing and happiness as an increase in worldly treasures and comfort. They use the world as a standard for blessing instead of focusing upward on heavenly things. Growing in holiness is, far, is a far better blessing than growing in material wealth. Now, false teachers emphasize the importance of wealth when the Bible warns against pursuing it. In 1 Timothy 3.3, Paul teaches us that Christians, and especially leaders of the church, are to be free from the love of money. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money, for the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And if you recall, Judas was the only disciple that was concerned with wealth. In the Old Testament, we see that God often blessed the Israelites' obedience with material rewards. In Deuteronomy, God promises, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your grounds, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flocks. God can certainly bless us materially. However, we should note, in the Old Testament, God's people were defined as a physical nation that received physical and material blessings. After the coming of Jesus, God's people are those Christians who make up the church. The church becomes God's chosen race, a holy nation. As a writer from the Gospel Coalition aptly put, earthly prosperity is no longer a mark of God's blessing. The blessing package of a nation racially descended from Abraham, living in a prosperous land, has been transformed by Jesus into a church from all nations, belonging to a heavenly land with heavenly blessings. In the New Testament, there are no longer promises of land filled with fruit and honey, but Jesus himself emphasizes heavenly blessings in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The rewards we get for giving are not necessarily earthly riches or comfort. In fact, God says that we, are, we as followers of Christ will suffer. But suffering for the sake of Christ will be for our blessing and will, be, and will result in heavenly reward. Along with Jesus being our ultimate treasure, these rewards will be more eternally satisfying than the material things here on earth and will show that our labor of love for the Lord was not in vain. Now to my second point. Um, since we covered why Christians should give, let's answer the question, what are we to give? This section actually has two subpoints. So the first one is uh, we're to give everything. Now we talked about how God is the owner of all things, and we are just a steward or manager of what he's given us. Therefore, our assets are not really our own. Rather, we are God's asset managers and given the responsibility to manage all the money that will pass through our hands in a manner that will glorify him. Now, according to Google, the average household income in New Jersey is about $125,000. That means if you are an average family in this state, well over $1 million will have passed through your hands in the short span of eight years. Imagine your earnings times your lifetime. Now when the Lord calls us home, we're going to have to give an account to God of what we've done with what he has given us. When you hear Christian giving, people often think about tithing, which we'll get into shortly, and automatically think about giving the Lord 10%. But when we come face to face with God, we're going to give an account for all the money that has passed through our hands. Will you be able to say that you've spent and allocated not part, but all of your money in a manner that most glorified him? Since there is not one exact formula as to how Christians should spend their money, there is liberty for the believer in this area. So my question to you is, are you actively thinking about how you're using your money? Are you seeking godly counsel in how you can use your money for God's glory? And uh, another point I want to bring up is it's a mistake to associate giving with just only finances. As, as we see in Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He further tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God not only owns all we have, but he also owns us fully, down to our bodies and to our souls. So we should give, even out of our gifts and our talents that he has blessed us with. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all 
to the glory of God. We must give out of all we have to bring worship to him. Now, I'd like to clarify a few things. And uh, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that every Christian has to live on an extremely tight budget or that it's wrong to accumulate wealth. But it does mean that nothing is off limits when it comes to God. There certainly were wealthy believers in the Bible. Some come to mind, such as Lydia, who opened her house to the church, Aquila and Priscilla, who were successful tent makers. However, in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, Paul exhorts the rich by telling them, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means arrogant or disdainful and setting oneself above others, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good, as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus' word in Matthew 19.24 also comes to mind. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So it's certainly okay for a believer to be wealthy, but then we must be extra vigilant to not let comfort, wealth, and luxury invade our lives and cause us to sin. Now, my second point... Um, is uh, uh, Old Testament versus New Testament giving. And I want to address this more specific question. We've established that God, God is entitled to everything that we own. But practically speaking, how much should Christians give? This brings us to our second uh, point, which is Old Testament versus New Testament giving. Now, a common misconception for Christians today is the concept of the Old Testament tithe, Most Christians believe we are obligated to give 10% of our income to the church. However, that's not really accurate, as we'll soon find out. But first, let's clarify what the Old Testament tithe was for. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were required by law to give 10% of the crops they grew and the livestock they raised to the tabernacle and the temple. However, the law didn't just require one tithe. It required multiple tithes. One tithe for the Levites, which enabled them to work in the temple full-time. One tithe for an annual temple feasts. And one given every three years to the storehouse to feed the poor. So when you add it up, Old Testament tithes were actually probably closer to 23.3%. So if you like to get really technical, tithing should be seen as 23.3% instead of 10%. So are we as Christians obligated to tithe, let alone make multiple tithes? Well, no, and here's why. The tithing was specifically tied to the Jews as a nation living in that promised land. However, with the coming of Christ, a new covenant is made. God's people are no longer solely identified as a Jewish nation. 
but it now includes all peoples who trust in Christ and are heirs of heaven. Tithes were also specifically given to the Levite priests to support them. However, Jesus abolished the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. There is no more need for a priest making sacrifices because a perfect sacrifice has been made. Again, there is no mention that Christians should give 10% of their income in the New Testament. However, this does mean that the Christian, uh, this does not mean that the Christian has no responsibility in giving. Rather, Paul instructs the New Testament believers to give in keeping with our income. So that means for some of you, giving 10% of your income may be honoring to God in light of where he has placed you and what he has given you. However, there are those who are in a position to give 50% of their income. Think about Zacchaeus in the New Testament. All this to say, it's not about a specific percentage, but the posture of your heart that what really matters when it comes to giving. This brings us to our third point. How should Christian give? Next, let's unpack how Christians should give by looking at our verse today. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. There are five takeaways from this verse. Uh, takeaway number one, giving should be reoccurring. Now, the New Testament principle of giving instructs Christians to give consistently. We find this principle in the first part of verse 2, on the first day of every week. See, Sunday was the day Christians gathered because Christ was raised from the dead on a Sunday. And there are two things to note here. They gave on the first day of every week. This should remind us to offer up our first fruits and give out of the best you have, not from your leftovers. Secondly, they gave on Sunday when they gathered at the church. We are currently in our sermon series titled, Gathered, Worshiping as God's People in Spirit and Truth. When we gather together as a church to sing songs of praise, to be convicted by the sermon, to confess our sins to one another, and even give individually as part of a larger congregation, we proclaim something very powerful. We are reminding one another that Christ is worth our praise. He's, he's worth our confessions. He's worth our giving. We spur each other to love him more tangibly. Now alone, you may be susceptible to the temptation to put your hope in money instead of God. You may be tempted to not tithe or give. But when living in a community and witnessing people publicly demonstrate their obedience to the Lord by generously giving, it spurs you to do the same and to trust in God together. Now, the second point that we can draw from this verse um, is... Our giving should be made with thoughtfulness and foresight. You see, Paul advises us to put aside our money, and that task requires thoughtful planning and intentionality. Often, we encounter ads on YouTube that
that appeal to our emotions by presenting heartbreaking stories aiming to prompt immediate donations. However, Paul doesn't uh, endorse such impulsive giving to the church. He echoes this sentiment in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, saying, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So you can see there is for, uh, forethought and care put into giving. The third point I want to make is that we should be giving proportionately. Paul continues by stating that we ought to give as he may prosper. Further along in 2 Corinthians, he instructs believers to contribute according to their means. This essentially means that if we have experienced substantial prosperity, we should allocate a more significant amount for giving to the church. Conversely, if our prosperity has been modest, giving a smaller amount is entirely acceptable. Uh, now, let's consider a straightforward example that illustrates this point. I have like um, uh, this example to show you. So we see here believer A earns an annual income of $62,500, while believer B earnings amount to $125,000 per year. Now, both of them contribute 10% of their income. However, when all factors remain the same, can we say that believer B has given proportionally more? The answer is no. After making their respective contributions, believer A is left with $43,318 for their living expenses, while believer B has $80,181, which is nearly twice as much. In fact, believer B could even afford to give 20% and yet have $24,363 more for personal expenses compared to believer A. One writer put it this way, generosity isn't marked by how much we give, but by how much we keep. And the Bible puts it this way, to whom much has been given, much more will be expected. Lastly, uh, this is the final point of um, this section, we are to give plentifully. Lastly, our giving is to be generous and even sacrificial at times. Paul concludes this verse by saying, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Generous giving is a sign of spiritual maturity and sincere love of God. Only genuine love for God can lead to a mature and giving heart. Such a generous heart often prompts us to give voluntarily far more than the 10% we frequently talk about. Now my next point, where should Christian gives? Uh, finally, having discussed the why, the what, and how of Christian giving, let's, let's address where our giving should go. Uh, th this is broken up into two points, uh, uh, the first point being obligations. Now, considering where we must give, let's begin with our primary obligation. In 1 Timothy 5.8, uh, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul underscores that our fundamental duty is to support our family. 
Similarly, 1 Timothy 5, 4 highlights, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. For some of us, this entails caring for our parents and grandparents who took care of us in our youth. Now, if you're already fulfilling your family responsibilities, the subsequent area for contributions is the local church. Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 9.14, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. According to God's word, the local church is tasked with supporting its pastors and their families. When you dine at a restaurant, you compensate those who prepare and serve your physical nourishment, don't you? Shouldn't the same principle apply to those who provide you with spiritual sustenance, which is even more significant? Referring to pastors, Paul says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor, especially those who work as preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the green, and the worker deserves his wages. And practically, a church necessitates uh, financial resources to function effectively. Looking back at the early church, we observed that funds were entrusted to the church leaders who subsequently allocated them according to necessity. Consider, for instance, the provisions made for widows. These church funds serve various purposes, including aiding the poor, supporting other sister churches in need. Furthermore, they can be directed towards individuals facing financial difficulties and missionaries dispatched worldwide. Also, a physical space is essential for congregational gatherings. Now that we talked about obligations, let's talk about opportunities. Once these primary obligations are fulfilled, the scriptures lack explicit commands regarding specific recipients for our giving. Nevertheless, they encourage us to actively seek out opportunities for giving. This sentiment is reflected in 2 Corinthians 8.8, 8, where Paul is careful to emphasize that he is not imposing a command to assist the struggling churches in Judea. Rather, he presents it as a chance for giving. Passage reads, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Following the provision for your family and consistent giving to your church, you might consider a strategic approach, one marked by careful planning rather than recklessness and thoughtlessness to allocate your remaining funds. Perhaps this entails an increased contribution to the church due to its faithful ministry. And as an additional note, my hope is that our giving to the church would increase proportionally with our income. And alternatively, consider utilizing your surplus funds to invite unbelievers to lunch, provide an uh, providing an opportunity for evangelism. Additionally, you might contemplate purchasing meals for a family that has a newborn or contributing to church planting. Another option is offering your home or your car to those facing in need. 
Furthermore, offering a personal loan to a fellow Christian without demanding interest to avoid profiting from their circumstances, which could aid them in overcoming their debt. With more excess money, there come more opportunities for you to prayerfully consider how to use it for the glory of God. Now, to summarize, uh, the Bible highlights that God loves a cheerful giver because our attitude toward giving reflects the, magnific the magnificence of God. This demonstration showcases that God is the ultimate source of generosity, and our cheerful giving becomes a response to what he has already bestowed upon us. God places greater importance on the intention behind our giving than the mere action itself. When you give in faith, you exhibit your trust in God's ability to use your contribution more effectively than you could ever. Giving should not arise from feelings of guilt or obligation, but conviction. And additionally, it shouldn't be devoid of thought or emotion either. In, in our day, many people contribute to the church, yet often without substantial thought. Giving has become automated, facilitated through online reoccurring donations. However, I implore you, church, to include intentionality into your giving. Let it not devolve into a routine or a mere task to be checked off, but rather reflect on the motivations for our giving. And may this contemplation drive us toward a spirit of generosity. In conclusion, I would like to remind you of the words of Jesus as recorded in Acts 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Often, it can be challenging for us to truly grasp the depth of this statement. But there exists immense satisfaction in witnessing how God can utilize our gifts to profoundly bless the lives of others in ways that surpass our imagination. Consider the instance of the boy who gave his five loaves of bread and two fish to Jesus. Try to imagine the excitement he must have felt when Jesus used his offering to miraculously feed 5,000 people. Now, I would also like to take a moment to express my gratitude for your sacrificial contribu contributions throughout the years at Maranatha Grace Church. As one of its founding members, I've witnessed MGC's growth since its inception and stand in awe of how God has harnessed your financial gifts and those of other churches to support the ministry both here and beyond. In conclusion, I'd like to share a quote that John Piper frequently cites. He had it on a plaque in his kitchen while he was growing up in his childhood home, and now it resides in his home study, it says. Uh, and this quote, it resonates particularly with the way we handle our money and give generously. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great truth that we have learned from our Lord Jesus, who was rich, but for our sake became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might 
be made rich. Thank you for the gift of salvation and adopting us into your family. Help us to be cheerful givers, generous, and to give freely, abundantly, and sacrificially for the sake of your kingdom. Since you have given us a taste of heaven, help us to rid ourselves of the taste of this world. Lead us into what lead us to invest in what truly matters. Free us from the lust of eyes and the vain pursuit of wealth that often hinders and entangles us. May it be your spirit that convicts our hearts in a personal and specific way. Thank you again for your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray.